Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, September the 15th, 2023. It is currently 4.38 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And that is probably a great clue that you're listening to the Theology Central podcast, even though you didn't actually hear the actual intro that we paid money for because I didn't have that intro queued up. No, this is the intro I had queued up. Are you ready? Here's the intro I had queued up. As we all know, that is the incorrect intro. That is the incorrect intro. The correct intro is, let's see, do I, can I find the correct intro? I don't know if I can find the correct intro. Let me see. Let me see if I can find it really quick. Thousands of audio files here. And when I say thousands, you think I am joking. Literally thousands of audio files because copies of all of our broadcast and copies of audio I've downloaded to review. I mean, there is so much here, but let me see. I can probably find it. It's down here at the bottom. I do need to create a file for all of our intro music is what I need to do. But here it is. Here is the correct intro. Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Does does that make you feel better? Is all right in the world now? Is everything perfect now? So yes, good afternoon, everyone. You are listening to the Theology Central Podcast. And as I've already stated, it is Friday, September the 15th, 2023. It is now 4.40 p.m. Central Time. And guess what? I'm still coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio, still located right here in that amazing city Abilene, Texas, where everyone should move to immediately. Everyone should move to Abilene, Texas, because then, well, then everyone could go to Victory Baptist Church and then then everything would be great, right? Maybe, possibly, I don't know. But good afternoon, welcome. I hope you are ready because we have a, a very important task in front of us on this Friday. As the week is coming to an end, the weekend is in front of us. And before we know it, it will be the start of a brand new week. We need to bring to a satisfying conclusion the work that we have been doing on thesis number seven and our ongoing study on the proper distinction between law and gospel. We've been working on thesis number seven. Remember, we're utilizing the book God's No and God's Yes, the proper distinction between law and gospel by C.F.W. Walther. We're also using the audio from issues ETC. It's a podcast you should subscribe to, so make sure you go subscribe to it right now and listen to it on a regular and consistent basis. That's Issues ETC, and the thesis that we are going to finish up is this. In the third place, the Word of God is not rightly divided when the gospel is preached first, and then the law, sanctification first, and then justification, faith first, and then repentance, good works first, and then grace. That's what we have to finish up. We, I think I have this queued up to the right section. I, I do. Um, my, my audio here says we have about 13 minutes left. 
I, I usually there's a little bit less left for their last segment. So I'm a little concerned that maybe I backed this up too far. We're going to find out if we do. We'll just, we'll work through it. Well, we'll do whatever is necessary to bring this to a conclusion. But before we do anything else, after that very rocky start right there, after correcting all of that, I have to remind you, it's written on this envelope, ladies and gentlemen. I have to remind you of the last episode where we heard one of the most amazing quotes Ever. In fact, someone, if you look on the Sermons 2.0 app and the Church 1 app, someone left a comment about the comment that I have written down here in this envelope. All right. And I want, and I want to remind you of this over and over and over and over again. Are you ready? Here we go. This is very important. What makes a good work a good work? When it comes to you before God, what makes a good work that you do really a good work? What makes anything you do, whatever it is, what makes it actually a good work? You know what makes it a good work? God has forgiven it. What makes a good work a good work? God has forgiven it. That is one of the most profound, powerful comments that we have heard in the entire study of of law and gospel. And this is like episode 102, 103. I mean, there's been over a hundred hours of teaching and, and, and like our, you know, the hundred and first hour, the hundred and second hour, we hear one of the most profound quotes because that quotes, that quote tells me and it should tell you that no matter what you do, no matter how good of, no, you can look at all your good works and say, Hey, this proves that I'm saved. You know, all it proves is that you've done good works that are tainted by sin. And the only way those works are good in the first place is because God has forgiven those works because all of our good works, even as believers, Nothing more than filthy rags before a holy God. Our good works, when laid next to the law of God, those good works need forgiveness because they are tainted and corrupted by sin. I hope you have written that down. I told you to write it down everywhere. I mean, I, 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 like, I, I don't know if I've ever heard a quote that, I, that so reflects the reality of my life, and it probably, and it should, if you're honest, reflect the reality of your life. No matter how good you think you've been today, no matter how much you have either you've done right, you've done wrong, no matter, no matter, no matter what you've done, everything you've done requires forgiveness because it's all corrupted by sin. Now, with all of that said, that six minutes of your life, okay, let's now focus in. Let's lay aside all of the little shenanigans and fun and little confusion there with the intro. Let's forget all of that. Let's turn our attention at the end of this week to wrapping up thesis number seven. We're utilizing the audio from uh, Issues ETC. We're using the segments between commercials. They're coming out of one of their commercial breaks. I think this is the final segment. If it's not a final segment, within like five minutes, they're going to go back to a commercial. They're not going to come. Usually we would stop there. We'll just turn the volume down. And I know it's it's always so unprofessional, but there's nothing we can really do because I don't want to have to, to, you know, I, I want to bring this to a conclusion for your Friday. So then on Monday, we can start brand new on thesis number eight. So here we go. Thinking caps on, notebooks open. Be prepared to email me with questions and doubts and struggles if you have any, but let's jump in and let's do so 
right now, let me reduce this volume because I don't want to blow your eardrums out because they're coming out of a commercial break. So their their theme music is very loud and we'll slowly increase the volume until they come in. Here we go. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest to part seven of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Walter has uh, two more sample sermon outlines just to drive the point home that he says are entirely incorrect. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the next one, <laughs> it's, got the, it's, it's really funny. Fifth subject, true Christianity. It consists, one, in Christian living, two, in true faith, and three, in a blessed death. And Walter's little comment on this is, this outline is simply horrible. <laughs> and then he moves on. Well, why is it horrible? Because it starts out with Christian living before you've addressed that which can enable a Christian to live a godly life. You've had no proclamation of the gospel, but you've started there already with something that presumes the gospel has been preached already. You can't have the living out of a Christian life without the preaching of the gospel. Sixth subject, what must a person do to become assured of his salvation? Now, that's one that I think is near to many people's hearts, right? A lot of people do struggle to trust the great promises of God regarding their salvation. He says, first, he must amend his life and become a different man. Second, he must repent of his sins. And third, he must also apprehend Christ by faith. Now, Walter asks, now tell me, how is it possible to lead a better life when I've not yet reached the stage that I abhor sin and abominate a wicked life? The worst part is part three, for there is nothing that gives me greater assurance of being saved than faith. So his conclusion on all this is that the pietists really get this all wrong. His prime example of it was to turn to the Right before he gets to this prime example, again, just to, for reminder's sake, if you don't remember, he's giving Luther. He's he's referencing Luther and uh, and and maybe Walther as well. They're looking. I think Walther is referencing Luther, and then he's referencing Walther. If I follow the the sources here, so and Luther was looking at outlines of sermons and saying how they get the law and gospel wrong, the law and gospel wrong. And it is very important that it is still a question that's asked today. How can you be assured of your faith? And many at the time of Luther and even today would say, you have to amend your life. How how are you living your life? Do you hate sin? Do you do this? And all the assurances come from what you do and are not doing. That is not the proper distinction between law and gospel. Your assurance comes from what? Christ did. If you want to be assured of your salvation, do you believe that Christ paid for your sins and that by faith, his obedience and his righteousness is yours? There's your assurance. It comes by faith and what Christ did, not in what you do. Because any amending of your life guess what? You're uh, how much ever how much you amend your life? No matter how much you clean up your life, it still needs to be forgiveness. That's why that quote from last week is so important. And someone made a joke in the comments section 
in the chat section on the Spreaker app, having the correct intro is law. Yes, there, that, that's, that's how I was acting. I was acting. If we do not have that correct intro, that is law and we are, and I am condemned. Okay. So yes, that, that, thank you for, for that, 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 that. I should have used it as an illustration of law and gospel, but I, I let it, I let it slip. But let's continue here because now he's going to go to, I think, I think what's coming up next is he's going to look at how Roman Catholics look at part of the Sermon on the Mount, like the Beatitudes. And this is very important because I have stated now for years that I think most Protestants, most non-Catholics, when they preach the Sermon on the Mount, they preach a Roman Catholic sermon. And whenever I point that out, everyone thinks that I'm crazy, but it's proven historically. Well, I mean, as someone who had to go to a, went to a Catholic university to pursue a degree in, in Catholic theology, I think I, I think I'm at least somewhat qualified to say so that our approaches to the Sermon on the Mount, it, well, not only is it an obliteration of the proper distinction between law and gospel, it's so Roman Catholic that it's not even funny. I think that's what he's getting ready to talk about here. We will see. Maybe, maybe I'm mistaking it with another episode, but we're getting ready to find out. Here we go. The way they try to find the stages of salvation in the way they read the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. It starts out maybe sort of plausible. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And they thought that meant a person had to be himself impoverished in his spirit. And what he is ignoring is that Christ is really talking here about an inner attitude that doesn't become attached to things. Walter says, a millionaire may be poor in spirit. If his heart has not become attached to his money and chattels, he doesn't really possess them. On the other hand, a beggar who is very poor may be the very opposite when he puts his trust in the little money that he has. The former is a blessed man, not the latter. And it gets even worse on the the second beatitude. Blessed are they who mourn, they will be comforted. And the pietists would say that means those who mourn for their sin. So you need to be poor, not to have anything in your spirit. And you need to also be the kind of person who is grieving over the way they've sinned against God. And Walter just flat out says, no, 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 no. Christ is referring here to the sorrowing and cross-bearing, which his followers have in this life for his name's sake. The man had just lost his wife. He'd certainly had a nervous breakdown or two in his ministry. He has struggled enormously in many, many hardships, and he toiled ceaselessly with being faithful to the word. And so he knew a thing or two about uh, what, what it was to mourn in this world. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. And he points out, well, the pietists don't even know what to do with that. There's no way they can fit that into their scheme of salvation. Christ says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be filled. And that's the fourth stage for the pietist. He says, what does meekness actually do to precede these other stages? If you ever preach the Beatitudes, he tells the young seminarians, please have a care not to follow pietistic preachers in this regard. It's not about stages of salvation and progressing in your salvation from one mental state to the next. And then he points out some of the Luther's writings against the antinomians. And these were the people who disagreed that the law had an ongoing place in the life of the Christian. So, He writes about these people. Walter cites Luther at length here. The antinomians have invented a new method by which grace is to be preached first. And after that, the wrath of God. 
The word law is not to be spoken at all within the earshot of Christians. That's a pretty seesaw, which pleases them wonderfully because by this trick, they can turn the scriptures upside down and think that they have become lux mundi, a marvel of the world, a light of the world. They force their notion upon the statement of St. Paul in Romans 1. And he points out how they do this. The antinomians would say, well, Paul already said at the beginning of Romans, in Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So there it is. He's not ashamed of that gospel. He lays the gospel out first. Luther's like, no, they do not see that Paul teaches the very opposite. He begins by exhibiting first the wrath of God from heaven. He denounces all men as sinners and is guilty in the sight of God. And after that, he teaches those who have been made conscious of their sin how to obtain grace and become righteous in the sight of God by faith. That is his powerful and plain argument in the first three chapters. It's an extraordinarily blindness and stupidity of the antinomians to imagine that the wrath of God is something distinct from the law. That cannot be, for the revelation of God's wrath in the law is in its operation upon the intellect and will of man. Paul expresses this fact when he says, the law works wrath. Now then, haven't they scored a fine point by doing away with the law in consideration of the fact that, after all, they have to teach it when they teach the wrath of God? They put the shoe on the foot the wrong way, trying to teach us the law after the gospel and wrath after grace. I'm well aware of the devil's schemes. I've seen what abominable errors he's bent on introducing by means of this exegetical (laughs) teeter-totter, but I cannot treat of them at this time. So he is just absolutely fed up with these antinomians, and he continues sort of railing against them later in his life in his Genesis commentary. And he picks up a really beautiful example here, one that I had never thought of until I read this in Walther. Luther says, it's indeed correct to say that people must be raised up and comforted, but an additional statement must be made showing who the people are that are to be comforted, namely those who, like Ishmael and his mother, have been thrust out of their home and fatherland, who are nearly famished with hunger and thirst in the desert, who groan and cry to the Lord and are on the brink of despair. Such people are proper hearers of the gospel. Hagar and Ishmael had to be brought into misery before they could be freed from their pride. And Walter says, you know, man, by nature, is a conceited being. What wrong have I done? I haven't committed murder or adultery or fornication or larceny. Wrapped in these miserable rags of civil righteousness, he thinks he can stand before God. The spirit of pride in him has to be cast out. That requires an application of the law that will crush his stony heart. And listen to how Luther unpacks this. Therefore, the antinomians deserve to be hated by everybody, spite of the fact they cite us in his example in order to defend their teaching. They misjudged Luther, Walter comments. The people were so crushed that one among them dared to believe that he was in a state of grace. In their best efforts at preaching the law, Roman priests preached the law. In their best efforts at preaching, the Roman priests preached the law, placing alongside of the divine law the laws of the church and the statutes of former councils and theologians and popes. So Luther knew that that was not the way to go. He said, they cite us as an example when they defend their teaching, while the reason why we had to start our teaching with the doctrine of divine grace is as plain as the daylight. 
the accursed Pope had utterly crushed the poor consciences of men with his human ordinances. He'd taken away all proper means for bringing aid and comfort to hearts in misery and despondency and rescuing them from despair. What else could we have done at that time? So he says, However, I too know that those who are surfeited, ease-loving, and overfed must be addressed in a different strain. We were all like castaways in those days and grievously tormented. The water in the jug was gone. That is, there was nothing to comfort men with. Like Ishmael, we all lay dying under the shrub. The kind of teachers we needed were such as made us to behold the grace of God and taught us how to find refreshment. The antinomians insist that the preaching of repentance must begin with the doctrine of grace. I have not followed that method, for I knew that Ishmael must first be cast out and made despondent before he can hear the comforting words of the angel. Accordingly, I have followed the rule not to minister comfort to any person except to those who have become contrite and are sorrowing because of their sin. Those who have despaired of self-help, whom the law has terrified like a leviathan that has pounced upon them, and they are perplexed for them. These are the people whom Christ came into the world to save, and he will not have a smoking flax be quenched. That's why he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Ishmael had not been reduced to this strait before he was expelled from Abraham's home. He was proud and secure, an antinomian and epicurean. He thought he had it made in the shade. I'm the eldest son. I'm older than than Isaac. Surely it's all going to be mine, and Sarah's going to have to obey me someday. That's what he was thinking. And Luther shows he had to be cast out with only that little bit, with the law's wages, the bread and the water, and sent away before he realized that he actually needed something from God that he before thought he didn't need. So Luther points to that beautiful example of Ishmael and says, this is how you know that the gospel has to be preached to the sorrowing heart, not to the one that's full. He ends by lamenting the state of Christian preaching in America. And he says, would that these preachers would just study Luther's sermons as an example of proper preaching. About 30 seconds for your comments. Oh, I, really, I want to scream amen. And, and every pastor, and I hope every every listener, in fact, has a copy of Luther's Church Postal and House Postal on the shelf. They are so worthwhile to read, to study. And the more you read them, the more you will continue to learn and marvel at them. This especially works really well if your congregation is on the one-year lectionary series. You're going to see those same readings being treated by Luther as he works his way through the church here. And, and you realize he really is an amazing teacher. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor. Now, I let that all play because there was so much being thrown at it, and he was barely taking a breath for me to even try to interrupt. So I wanted you to hear it all. There's a couple of concepts here. So he deals with the Sermon on the Mount, he deals with the antinomians, and he really kind of deals again with the order, the order, and who should get comfort. So let's talk about these somewhat briefly to try to bring this to some kind of conclusion. Now, let me state this. This is where I always get myself in trouble because I'm not committed to a team. I'm not committed to a perspective. I'm, I'm committed to trying to find the truth. I think Walther's handling of the of this the Beatitudes is just as wrong as the the uh, 
the the group that he was referencing, I was going to say the papist, but uh, the the group that he was referencing there. Um, I I disagree with with their their approach. I disagree with Walther's approach. I disagree with Luther's approach. I disagree with almost everyone's approach to the Beatitudes. Right? I don't I don't care who you are. I don't I don't care if it's the Roman Catholic Church. I don't care if it's those looking for some kind of piety, the Pietist. I don't care if it's a Walther Luther. I don't care if it's the modern day Lutheran Church. I think so many people misunderstand the Beatitudes, and I and I get whenever I hear sermons on it, it drives me absolutely crazy. So let me go through these carefully and try to show you what I think is a correct reading and understanding of the Beatitudes. I know this is like, and I and I'm willing to say this is my hypothesis, and I know people disagree with it, and that's okay. So I'm not going to try to be dogmatic. I just think all the other renderings of it and readings of it and interpretations of it, not only are they a violation of the proper distinction between law and gospel, I think they just leave you so despairing and confused because there's just no way. So let's go through these Beatitudes. First, we'll know these Beatitudes are all conditional. If you want to be blessed, you have to do something. If you want to be blessed, you have to do something. If you want to be blessed, you have to do something. So that's conditional, conditional, conditional. The minute I see the conditions, I know it's law because the law tells you what you must do. The promise is blessing, but the conditions are these. Let's look at the conditions. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be blessed, you have to be poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. There has to be poor in spirit. There has to be mourning. Blessed are they, are the, and immediately it will be like, well, how poor in spirit do I have to be? How do I obtain this poor of spirit? Am I poor enough? Wait, I'm mourning. How do I mourn? How much do I mourn? Have I mourned enough? Have I not mourned? Like immediately you're going to start asking these questions. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the, the earth. Am I meek enough? If I'm not meek enough, what is this meekness? How do I understand this meekness? Am I fulfilling this? Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. Are you, do you truly hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do you truly hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do you? If you really, truly hungered and thirst after righteousness, what would your practical everyday life look like? Would it look anything like the life that you live? All right. Uh, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Are you truly merciful? Come on. Honestly, are you even merciful? Even rem- like if you were to rate how merciful you are. Now, see, this immediately turns into a list of do's and do. Are you doing this? Are you not doing this? Are you doing this? And immediately you're going to start going, woe is me. I don't know if I do these things. It gets worse. Right. Blessed are the pure in heart. Are you truly pure in heart? Now, can you even be pure in heart with a sinful nature? Can there ever be even anything close? So some people say, well, it's not that you have to do these things. It's just you must be striving to do those things. But that's not what this says. Blessed are those who are this. This is what you're supposed to be. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you. So all of these things you're supposed to be and do. And then I say, this is the path to blessing. This is the path. So you have to do, do. And I'm going to argue that all of that is law, 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 law. And if you're even remotely honest with yourself, you're going to say, I fall short. I fall short. I fall short. I fall short. So in my mind, the only way to understand this, if that is law, then the only hope is in the gospel. And I know if I jump over, I believe it's Ephesians. 
chapter 1. I, I know this. All right, here we go. Um, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. If I want to be blessed... I have to be in Christ. And you know what? When I look at those Beatitudes, Christ has done them all for me. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Was he poor in spirit? Did he mourn? We know he wept and mourned. Did he, was he meek? We know that he was meek. We know that he hungered and thirsted after righteousness. We know he was merciful. We know he had a pure heart. We know he was a peacemaker. We know he was persecuted. So in Christ, all of those requirements are fulfilled for me. And now I am blessed in Christ Jesus. Christ is the blessed man of the Beatitudes. And in him, those blessings become mine. That's the only way to understand it. Unless you turn it into do this, do this, do this, do this, do. You're never going to do it. I don't care if it's the papists, the pietists, the Lutherans. I don't care who, if they tell you, you have to do these things. Well, you know, hey, you can be a Christian, but the blessed life. See, there's the Christian life, and then there's the blessed Christian life. And the blessed Christian life are those who do these things. So, And then they, and then they will add other parts to it. Not only do you have to do all of these things, well, if you want to be the blessed man in Psalm 1, you have to meditate on God's word day and night, and you can't. I mean, let's go to Psalm 1. You can't. There's a million. There's Look at all the things you're supposed to do to be the blessed man and Psalm 1. And you can look up other passages that give similar concepts. If we go to Psalm 1, we read this. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Guess what? You're never truly going to be that. You're going to be guilty. Who actually meditates on God's word day and night? There's 8 million studies showing Christians barely read their Bible, barely study their Bible. They clearly don't memorize their Bible. So clearly we would all fall short of it. And that's including myself. So I think when you come to the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are law. What is that law supposed to do? condemn you, make you go, Lord, I long to be the blessed man, but I cannot be. And then but by faith in you, then Christ, I can be blessed in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. So, so what is the right order? It's always law, which then condemns you. And then he talked about the antinomians flipping it. Now we would have to really get into the antinomian writing. Everyone knows the term antinomian, knows like the basic idea of what an antinomian is supposed to be against the law or no law. And then, and then, and, but they don't ever actually read or study what the antinomians are. He talks about the order that somehow they wanted grace first and then wrath after, which kind of gets confusing. The bottom line is here's the proper order. It always is God's law is given that shows us our sin and it condemns us and it drives us to Christ. It drives us to him. We have to be broken. And who deserves the comfort? Who should you preach the comfort of the gospel to? Those who are broken and weary. And he uses the example of Ishmael and Hagar. Now, I I do like the way he tries to use them as an example. I think we have to be careful and say, I don't know if that's really the purpose of that story. 
I don't know if that's really, the, but it does show that it's those who've been cast out. It's those who are weary and starving and dying. Those are the ones who get the gospel, the comfort of the gospel. You have to be broken by the law, condemned by the law, thrust out by the law till you get the comfort of the gospel. And I will say anyone who's even remotely honest with themselves, if they read the Sermon on the Mount, you will find yourself thrust out, alone, starving, and dying. But for some weird reason, churches preach the Sermon on the Mount and everyone sits there going, amen, amen, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this. And it's like, none of you can, none of you do. Stop saying amen and start saying, woe is me. That's the proper order. The law must be preached in it. Like the Sermon on the Mount, those Beatitudes, that is law. If you look at that going, I want to be the blessed man. I want to be blessed. I mean, who wa- who doesn't want to be the blessed person? Who doesn't want to be blessed? But look at those requirements. Blessed are the pure in heart. <laughs> Give me a break. You're never going to be pure in heart. Not practically, positionally you are. Therefore, in Christ, you are blessed with all spiritual blessings. And there you have it. The order must always be the law condemns, the law breaks, the law reveals, drives us to Christ. Then Christ, we find that comfort. Who gets the comfort of the gospel? Those who've been broken by the law. Those who've been thrown out. Those who've been cast out. There's a standard. And when you don't meet that standard, you're aware of it. Going back to the opening illustration, my standard is, is to pray, to play the right, the law is to play the right introduction. And the minute I did not did that, I started jumping through hoops to try to correct it and make it right. Well, you can try to jump through hoops to make it right whenever you're not uh, fulfilling the law of God, but ultimately you still didn't, you still don't pass the test. You still fail. So your only hope then Your only hope at that point is that Christ fulfilled it on your behalf. And I know that goes against our nature. Like, I have to do something. I must do something. And I understand we all want to do something. But Christ did it for us. And that concludes thesis number seven. I I feel like I need to say something rather profound, but there's really nothing profound to say. You may disagree strongly with my handling of the entire Sermon on the Mount, but if you want my entire interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, it's law, 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 law. In fact, what basically Christ is doing is saying, you think you understood the law? You think you understand the law of the Old Testament? You think you understand the law of Moses? Let me show you what the law really requires. It requires much more than an external obedience. It requires an internal obedience. And anyone preaching the law, the Sermon on the Mount, by the time you get to the end, the entire congregation could be like, well, then we're all, we're all, we were, none of us accomplishes this. We all fail. And many pastors will go so far and, and look, go find my series on the Sermon on the Mount and you can hear it for yourself. Preach the Sermon on the Mount as the, the, the Sermon on the Mount proves whether you're truly saved. It proves whether your repentance is genuine. 
Well, I will argue that no, everyone in your church should say, well, then no one is saved. But everyone said in that church saying amen to a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount that was an absolute obliteration of law and gospel, and it destroyed the gospel. It was an absolute, it presented a false gospel because it was basically the gospel is something that helps you fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. And if you don't fulfill the Sermon on the Mount, you're not saved. Nobody fulfills the Sermon on the Mount. Nobody fulfills the Sermon on the Mount. I want to say that again. Nobody obeys the Sermon on the Mount. Let me say it again. No one obeys the Sermon on the Mount. All right? Uh, Let's see here if I can find it. Um, Look, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. This is right in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 48. This is literally in the Sermon on the Mount. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. I'm sorry, you're never going to be perfect. You're never going to be complete. You're never going to be not lacking something. You're always going to fall short. The whole Sermon on the Mount shows you that you fall short. Now, that should drive you to Christ. After what Christ does for you, then you, you go back and you do look at the Sermon on the Mount and you do pursue that. That's the life you are to pursue. It is. It's the life you should desire out of gratitude, out of love, out of respect of what Christ has done for you. So there is a use of the law after your salvation. Now, that law still is there to show you that you don't and which will constantly drive you back to Christ, but it does serve as a reminder and as a, a direction in which you're supposed to be pursuing. All right. Email me, news if at yahoo.com, news if at yahoo.com. That's news if at yahoo.com. And to the person who made the joke about having the correct intro is law, thank you. You set me up pretty good. And that's the person who pointed out the quote uh, from the last episode about what makes a good work a good work. God has forgiven it. Cannot stress to you the importance of that. So thank you. Thanks to everyone else who emailed, commented. For those other people who have commented on, uh, sometimes I know, see your comment on the Church One app, on the Sermons 2.0 app. Sometimes I don't. Um, I don't get an email from, I don't get an email from them telling me someone just commented. I don't. The only time I get an email from them that someone commented is when they're basically like, hey, someone commented, but there's no way in the world we can post this. All right. This thing is so outrageous. There's no way. And they say, if you want to see it, click here. Um, but everything else, they just, if it's, if it's, if they, they kind of view it and if it's positive, they just immediately post it and I don't know. So if I ever don't comment on yours, it's not because I, overlooked it or didn't care. It's just because sometimes I just don't see it. I just happened to be looking on the Church One app, making sure I had my numbers right, and the comment popped up. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. All right. There you have it. I feel like I should say, I hate these last segments because they're so short. They're so short. I mean, they're like five, six minutes long. And it's like, and like there, I couldn't even really interrupt it because it was just like, Da, 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 because he's moving. They got that time. They got that hard break coming up at the end of the hour. So they're like, he's got to go boom, boom, boom. Even the host can't really step in to ask any questions. And the guy's just going, go, 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 go. Then it's like, okay, you got 30 seconds to make one more comment. Boom. Okay. Thank you. We're out. And it's like, whoa, I, I, I hate that. I could not live in that world. It's one of the great things about the podcasting format. I got no breaks. I got no, I, I can go as long as I want. So uh, hopefully. 
it's um, positive, right? Okay, there you go. Thanks for listening. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a wonderful, 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 wonderful weekend. I may try to get another broadcast in uh, here shortly. Maybe we can. Um, And then maybe, I don't know if if we're going to do a late night one. I don't think we're going to do a late night one. And then we'll see what we can get done tomorrow. And then uh, Sunday, I got to figure out how, we kind of got started with the dispensations and the covenants. We're going to have to put that all back together and hopefully Sunday have a good day dealing with dispensationalism. So um, we'll get that all planned out. And uh, well, you just keep tuning in. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.